Well, hello and welcome to another Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint live event. Uh, my name, of course, is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, really excited to have you here with us today. Uh, you know, if you are not familiar with our organization, the Alliance, uh, the organization was really started about three and a half years ago almost. Uh, and the mission of the organization is really to educate the public and connect people together who are dedicated to changing minds, laws, policies, and practices, so that restraint and seclusion are reduced and eliminated from schools across the nation and beyond. Of course, uh, you know, our focus on, on things like restraint and seclusion are much broader than that. Uh, we honestly don't want to see people being restrained or secluded in any type of environment where it at all can be avoided. Uh, so whether it's uh, mental health settings, uh, whether it's healthcare, whether it's uh, you know, uh, senior care, wherever it might be, we certainly don't want to see things like restraint and seclusion happen. And beyond that, it's it's not just restraint and seclusion, it's restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment, all the things that very often happen to uh, to kids, but many things that happen to all individuals very often in the name of behavior. Uh, so, you know, we're really about trying to bring about some change. Uh, really excited today to have a fantastic guest. Uh, we have Dr. Kevin Ann Huxhorn joining us today to talk about the six core strategies to reduce seclusion restraint. I uh, just want to remind you that, as always, uh, our presentation will be recorded today. So this will be available uh, not only live, but after the fact on YouTube, on Facebook, and we also make it available as an audio podcast. So if you want to listen on the go, uh, it's a very convenient way to do it. I do want to let you know that you're going to have an opportunity to ask questions today. Uh, I talked to Dr. Huxhorn, and we've uh, agreed to kind of take questions at the end, but that doesn't mean you can't put them in the chat at any time. And anytime that you have questions or comments, you know, please put those in the chat and I'll go back to those as they come. So with that, let me go ahead and introduce our guests today. Uh, so I want to introduce to everyone uh, Dr. Kevin Ann Huxhorn uh, and tell you a little bit about uh, Kevin Ann Huxhorn, who is the executive president of Northeast of Northeast Region for Recovery uh, Innovations International, uh, is responsible for uh, on-site operations in Delaware, Virginia, Ohio, and Maryland, uh, you know, my home state, uh, engaging in consultation work for the organization, uh, progressing new program implementation efforts, participating in contract negotiations, uh, and operating within a state or regional leadership role when needed. Uh, Dr. Huxhorn is a licensed and certified mental health nurse and a substance abuse clinician with practical knowledge from uh, 42 years of professional frontline experience working in a variety of public and private mental health organizations and substance abuse programs. Uh, she has extensive experience in both inpatient and outpatient um, develop. Uh, excuse me, inpatient outpatient uh, program development, including peer-run projects, uh, psychiatric rehabilitation uh, treatment programs uh, for people with serious mental illness and recovery-based mental health and substance abuse services. Uh, she's published on topics including violence uh, treatment. Uh, and workforce development, uh, serves on the editorial board of the U.S. Peer Review uh, Nursing Mental Health Journal, uh, has authored a number of textbook chapters on violence reduction, uh, and co-authored a book uh, with William Anthony, uh, Dr. William Anthony, titled Principled Leadership in Mental Health Systems and Programs. Uh, Dr. Huxhorn was a past director of the office of Technical Assistance for the National Association for State Mental Health Program Directors. Uh, and I'm not going to even say that acronym because it's it's very long. <laughs> uh, and the National Coordinating uh, Center for Seclusion and Restraint Reduction, uh, where she led the development of an evidence-based model to prevent uh, violence in the use of uh, and the use of seclusion and restraint. 
uh, from uh, 2001 to 2021. Uh, I had the opportunity to um, meet you actually after a, uh, a colleague had recommended uh, your work and told me about what you had done. Uh, and it seems like it's, it's probably been about six months or so since we had our initial conversation. Uh, but I remember we talked for quite some time and uh, I really appreciate it. You sharing your experience uh, in in what you work to develop and implement around restraint seduction, uh, restraint and seclusion reduction, uh, really was interesting to talk to you and in, in about where and what you were doing uh, and the difference that you made. So, uh, Dr. Huxhorn, I am very excited to have you here today and really appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Guy, and greetings, everyone. I'm assuming it's a good afternoon uh, in most parts of the country. Um, I, I span right now four time zones, so I'm always kind of confused on <laughs> what time it is. Um, but it's my great pleasure to be speaking to you today, and I'm going to do my level best to keep my presentation to an hour or a little bit less, so we have plenty of time for questions. Just to let you know, um, my contact information um, can be gotten from Guy, so if anybody has questions afterward that you want to follow up with, I have absolutely no problem doing email. Uh, or responding that way, or even getting on the phone. Um, and just to add a little bit, first of all, just call me Kevin. Every time someone says Dr. Huck Short, I look around for my father, who's somewhere <laughs> in heaven, but um, that he was the only one that ever was called Dr. Huck Short. Um, I want also to just mention that uh, this work on the reduction of seclusion restraint for me started in 1998 when I was tasked to go into to South Florida State Hospital, which had a lot of problems back then in Pembroke Pines, Florida, and one of them being extraordinarily high rates of the use of seclusion restraint, um, to go into that facility and transition it from uh, state government control to a private company to run it because of all the issues that had been going on for the last two decades. And well, while we were in that facility, and that we still are, uh, but while I was there, um, that is where we did, I did the first work to significantly reduce the use of seclusion and restraint in an inpatient behavioral health setting. And back then, we had no idea what we were doing. We did this by the seat of our pants and a whole lot of help by our peer support specialists, which for those of you who don't know, Peer support specialists are people with lived experience that are a new work for a new workforce in behavioral health, adult, child, um, adolescents um, who have again lived experience with either a serious mental illness or a substance use disorder, and who have gotten into recovery and have gotten certified and come back to work in the field side by side with the regular staff, um, and they were key in helping me understand the dynamics of violence and how to prevent it. So what I'm gonna run through with you today um, is basically an overview of the six core strategies. It is an evidence-based practice. It is the only evidence-based practice to date on reducing seclusion and restraint. Um, it's generally a two full two-day training that me, myself and some of my colleagues still do. Um, and I guess the only other thing I wanted to mention is that um, af after I left South Florida State Hospital and I went to the National Association of State Mental Health Program Directors, um, about that time is when the Hartford Current um, articles were released and this whole issue became under national scrutiny, which had never happened before. 
So, and I guess the third thing I'm going to say is first and foremost, I am a registered nurse. I've been a registered nurse since 1977. Uh, and so I bring with me holistic and wellness practices mm -hmm. wherever I go, regardless of the setting that I'm in, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. probably helped a lot in understanding these issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Kevin, uh, uh, just a couple of quick things and then I'll let, I'll turn it over to you and you can take over with the, uh, the presentation, which we're really excited about. Uh, you know, first I'll, I'll let you know that, um, you know, in terms of time zones, uh, believe it or not, uh, we typically have people from all over the world. So, Ooh. uh, you know, and, and I often uh, reference our, our friends in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, it's not unusual that we have people. And, and of course it's seven o'clock in the morning in parts of Australia tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so even more challenging. Um, so we do have people from all over the world that join us for this. And I think that's really great. Um, I have one question before, and, and I know you haven't even started your presentation, but one question for you before you start your presentation is I was listening to uh, you talk about things. And of course, you know, having talked to you before as well, uh, thinking about when you began this work around reducing and eliminating restraint seclusion, does it surprise you at all that these practices are used in schools today and, and very often used on children with disabilities, considering that there's been knowledge out there for some time related to ways to reduce these practices? Um, it does and it doesn't. And right. it doesn't because we're still using these practices and in some places way too much in my own settings, behave, you know, in, in mental health and substance use disorder inpatient services, both child, adolescent, and um, adult. And frankly, um, the school system is lagging behind the work that has been done in the actual behavioral health field for some time, and that's normal. It takes a while for language to, or for uh, new learning and science to transition into practice. Um, the, the Surgeon General estimated in 19, I think it was like 1999, that it took about 15 years for that to happen. Wow. So I think everybody's been on a significant learning curve. Um, the, the issues having to, well, I'm going to go through some of the issues on right. what makes a successful project in reduction and why it often doesn't work. Um, and, and you'll right. understand a little bit better than um, I think the school system makes it even more difficult because you do not have the same kind of regulations and requirements that we right in healthcare um, are under for joint commission accreditation, mm -hmm. centers for Medicare and Medicaid certification. Um, so we have a lot of scrutiny and I think only until recently have school systems really started to be subject to some of that same scrutiny. So right, no, right. it doesn't really surprise me. It's it's just unfortunate because I think it's harder in these non-healthcare systems to make mm -hmm. these changes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to bring up your uh, slide deck here. So let me go ahead and add this to the stream. I, I do want to ask people that are uh, watching out there live. Uh, a couple of you already have, uh, probably because you've joined us enough to know I always ask this. But uh, in the chat, please uh, tell us who you are and where you're from. Uh, it's always great to see where people are joining us from here today. And with that, uh, Kevin, I'm going to turn this over to you. I'm going to disappear. But as I mentioned to you, I'm going to be here uh, just watching off to the side. If there's anything you need from me at all, don't hesitate to call my name and I'll kind of pop up. And, uh, okay. and just reminding people as we get to the end of your presentation, uh, we'll have an opportunity to take questions. Yes. All right, great. Um, okay, so I'm going to go ahead and get started. I am going to go rather quickly. So you are full, you, you will have this slide deck. 
and you can certainly look at it later. Um, I'm, I, you know, I've basically taken two days of information and smushed it into like an hour. So um, I will do the best I can. So just for those of you who may not be aware, in the United States in 1998, the Hartford, um, Connecticut newspaper, the Hartford Current, became aware of the death of a child in one of their residential programs. His name was um, Andrew McLean, and he was suffocated to death two weeks after admission. He had gone into that program because he was having trouble at school and at home with dysregulated behavior. And when the Hartford Current newspaper found that out, they were like, what's, what's restraint? What are you talking about? How can a little kid go into a program and then die there? He was supposed to go in for help. And so, of course, they asked all the usual questions and they got the same responses that programs usually give. Can't talk about it. It's under investigation, confidentiality. Well, the Hartford Current editor was not, was not okay with those answers. So he tagged four of his investigative reporters and sent them out around the country for almost eight to nine months. And they went and met with over 400 people in the behavioral health and other related fields. So they talked to commissioners of mental health in states. They talked to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid and Joint Commission. They talked to family members of um, loved ones who had been in restraint or seclusion, who had lost loved ones due to, to restraint and seclusion. They talked to consumers of services. They talked to hospital administrators. Uh, they talked to local counties. They talked to everybody they could find. And they came back at the end of 1998 and they published a series of five articles basically titled Deadly Restraint. Because what they had found in their travels was that seclusion and restraint was being used all over the country. It was being defined very differently. It was sometimes used for things like spitting or cursing or um, refusing to follow a rule. They found that even in one state, seclusion and restraint was being used very differently. They found that there was no national database on its use. They found that when people died proximal to being restrained, no one knew about it unless by chance a local newspaper picked it up. They also noted that there were no real good definitions of seclusion and restraint. Um, and they came back and they published this and it hit the behavioral health field like a lightning strike. And within a couple months, the issue of seclusion restraint was being debated in the US Congress, who brought in a bunch of people. They subpoenaed people and they asked for testimony from psychology, psychiatry, nursing, um, social work. They, they brought in Joint Commission. They brought in Centers, um, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. They brought in our federal partners, who's called SAMHSA. They, they brought in NAMI. They brought in the Mental Health Association. And they heard all this testimony. And, and this is where things started to get sticky, because a lot of my colleagues went to Congress and said, the Hartford Current greatly exaggerated this issue. It's no big deal. We've been using seclusion and restraint. In fact, it's used internationally for hundreds of years. And we wouldn't be able to do our work without it. So the US Congress, who weren't sure who to believe at that point, they sent out a group of investigators from the GAO, which is the Governmental Accountability Office, which is kind of like internal government police, kind of like MPs are um, in, uh, or internal affairs is for police departments. They kind of monitor government work. 
and ethics and appropriateness and those kinds of things. So they sent out this team of investigative reporters or investigators and lawyers, and they followed in the Hartford Current's footsteps all through 1999. And they came back and they wrote their own report on seclusion and restraint. And in that report, they basically validated everything the Hartford Current reporters had written about. But they did something really important. They also identified 10 or 11 models of excellence who by their own work without talking to anybody else had greatly reduced the use of seclusion restraint. And a few of those programs included um, the state of Pennsylvania, the state mental health hospitals under Charlie Curry had by then already reduced the use of seclusion restraint by thousands of hours in their 10 hospital system. They talked to the state of Massachusetts who had done the same thing for their child adolescent behavioral health programming. And then they found other much smaller systems like a hospital here and a, 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 a residential program there. Um, and they talked to them and they brought that information back and put that in the report. So about this time, Congress then looked at HICFA, which is now the Center for Medicare and Medicaid, who's responsible for healthcare services, ethics, appropriateness, and said to them, basically, this is your fault, fix it. So HICFA, which is what it was back then, now CMS, did an emergency rule change and sent it out. At this point, I was at the National Association for State Mental Health Program Directors, which is a national association which has members from each state, and the member is the Commissioner of Mental Health or Substance Abuse. So we basically have 55 members at NASHBID, um, which include all 50 states, D.C., and a couple of the territories. So they, they, they meet all the time, and they really lead the country in behavioral health best practices and promising practices. So the states started calling our office and saying, what do we do? We're being told to reduce seclusion restraint. Nobody knows how to do it. We're getting reports that some hospital directors are going in and pulling out all the restraint equipment and locking the seclusion room doors and people are getting hurt and people are starting to panic and staff are starting to quit. So what do we do? So my boss came to me and said, Kevin, can you please get a group of people together? Um, let's get some meetings and let's figure out what to do. So what I did at that point was go back to that US GAO report and contacted everybody in that report who'd been successful in reducing the use of seclusion and restraint in their facility or their state. And we brought them all to Washington over a period of about six, seven months. And we basically had brainstorming sessions. And through that process, nobody could come to these meetings unless they'd actually been part of a project and was successful in reducing seclusion and restraint. So through that process, the six core strategies emerged that everybody pretty much had used. And we created the Nashville training curriculum at that point in 2002. We started going out and training all the state hospitals in the state service systems, the government systems across the country. In 2003, the, our federal partners um, basically said, this is great. However, we now want to find out if this really is evidence-based. So after about a year and a half, we were able to launch an eight state research project to see if the six core strategies was um, just a fluke or if it was actually evidence-based. 
Uh, we, uh, it started out with 43 facilities in eight states, and it was run by the Cambridge University Human Services Research Institute. So we had nothing to do with that. They managed the research project. And throughout that process, um, it turn, turned out that the six core strategy model was extremely effective. And in 2012, it became an evidence-based practice. So just some important observations. States where the state mental, the Department of Mental Health were involved achieved the most significant successes. So out of those eight states, two states, um, there's their Department of Mental Health. In other words, their most executive leaders, and I'm going to talk about leaders a lot, were involved and they had the, the absolute best um, results. In general, there were um, the, the, of all the, the folks that participated, um, we saw the reduction of seclusion events at around 70% and the reduction of restraint events around 50%, which is a very, very significant findings. We also throughout that process saw no reports of increased injuries from any site that implemented the six core strategies appropriately. And we had a fidelity tool which means that people couldn't just go run around and do whatever. They had to kind of follow. Every evidence-based practice has, you have to work to the fidelity of the model, which means you can't just kind of make it up on the fly. You have to follow the actual model. Um, so again, the significant success of this first study provided more than enough evidence um, to, to apply for an evidence-based practice uh, certification. And this also was a huge step in changing our national threshold for what is called usual and customary practice, in this case, with regard to seclusion and restraint. And since that time, I can tell you, because I've served as an expert witness in a number of lawsuits, is that um, this, not just this, not just this model, but this and all the literature that is now out there has greatly impacted um, the fact that more and more hospitals and healthcare workers are being held responsible for not practicing uh, best um, in the in, in quantifiable best um, strategies that they should know by now. Um, so they're being held accountable if they are not following best practices at this point in many healthcare facilities. So what we know at this point is that we know that the prevention of conflict and the reduction of seclusion and restraint is possible. We know for sure in all mental health settings. We also know that it has been extremely effective um, in settings that serve people with intellectual disabilities and autism disorders. And we have worked to some degree with some schools across the country. The model needs to be adapted in these different kinds of systems but it is, it is um, highly credible and adaptable for those settings. Um, but what we also know is that, that this effort takes tremendous leadership, commitment, and motivation by all involved. So first of all, when you start to look at an issue like reducing seclusion and restraint that's been used for hundreds of years, isn't even taught in schools. It's just something you learn on the job so it becomes baked in to the culture of facilities is that you're talking about a culture change, a real significant culture change in any setting that has gotten used to using seclusion and restraint. And the other thing you have to understand is when you start talking about culture change, 
we're not just talking about um, practices that reduce seclusion and restraint. We're talking about um, taking a very hard look at how the staff, whether they're teachers or nurses or mental health techs or psychologists or psychiatrists or whoever, how they interact with the clients they're serving, what skills they have, and, and what do they understand about recovery, building resiliency, and transformation principles. Again, best practice core strategies have been identified, but implementing those and then holding folks accountable is slow and difficult. In terms of the development of the six core strategy curriculum is very similar to any other evidence-based practice. We did a, a huge review of the literature and that has um, continued as ongoing. We used the faculty from those original brainstorming groups to help write the curriculum. I was the principal investigator and I have a couple of close colleagues that served with me and still do. Um, we learned very quickly um, from our, our, our experts, our, our subject matter experts, um, that they had very important personal information and direct experiences in how to do this work. We also spent a lot of time interviewing and talking with staff working in these settings and the people that were getting services, which sometimes we call patients, clients, consumers, peers, um, res residents. It's different wherever you're talking about. But when I talk about service users, I'm talking about our customers and what it was like to be restrained or what is like as staff to participate in these events. So another thing about an evidence-based practice, and this is important for any of you who might wanna move this forward, is one of the first things you need to do is get agreement on the theoretical model or the foundational principles for the work you're going to do. Because if people don't agree on these basic principles, it's really hard to move forward. So the six core strategy model, evidence-based practice, is based on these particular um, principles. First is that leadership is critically important. If you really um, wanna go forward and prevent the conflicts and violence that lead to the use of seclusion and restraint, then your leadership has to be involved very thoroughly. This is not something that your grassroots staff can do by themselves. The next is the public health prevention approach, which I'll talk about in a minute. The next, the third is really believing people can recover and really believing that people can build resiliency. I don't care if they're six years old or 80 years old. Um, it is really important to believe that people with serious mental illness and substance use disorders and all kinds of things in between can recover and lead high quality productive lives and that they do that in part by, by um, learning resiliency skills. It's also really important to never stop valuing what our customers tell us. And you can call that great customer service. It kind of go, goes hand in hand with trauma knowledge and understanding that um, the prevalence and incidence of traumatic life experiences in the general public is somewhere between 50 and 60%. And when we start talking about um, people that are that are coming into care in the public sector, we're now talking up to 98% of people have been significantly affected by trauma. And that that has changed in some cases how their brain developed, how they respond to stress, and that that needs to be addressed. And then last, that we always do this work under the umbrella of continued quality improvement, because that's the only way we learn from our mistakes. 
We and we are going to make mistakes because we are humans providing services to other humans. So we have to be honest about those and take those risks and own up and do that in a safe environment so we can fix whatever went wrong and so it doesn't happen again. So just a real quick comment about the public health prevention model. This was very, very interesting. Back in 2000, and I want to say 2000, um, after the Hartford Current Report came out, after the Governmental Accountability uh, Report came out, the Nashville Medical Directors Council, which were the state medical directors from all 50 states and, and five territories, got together to talk about this problem. And they actually released a number of toolkits, which are still available through the Nashville website. And what they, a number of the psychiatrists that were medical directors had been in the public health field prior to becoming psychiatrists. So they were basically trained in epidemiology and they immediately identified that the public health prevention model, because it's a model of disease prevention and health promotion was a logical fit with the use of seclusion and restraint and trying to reduce that use or using trauma-informed care in practice. And the reason is, is because when you approach a problem, and in this case, it was the use of seclusion and restraint. If you approach that problem looking at why are we even using seclusion and restraint? What's contributing to the use of that? Oh, geez. Well, we don't really use seclusion and restraint unless someone becomes violent. Okay, so what, what does violence look like? Well, for someone to become violent, generally, 99% of the time, they get upset first or they've had a conflict with somebody. So the public health prevention model says, instead of waiting until you're putting hands on people, which is too late, they're so escalated that they're dangerous, you go upstream and you say, wait a second, what can we do to stop that pathway from ever happening? So it focuses us on prevention. Um, and that is, was a critical piece of moving this model forward. So again, the public health prevention model is a model of disease prevention. Um, it's a logical fit. It identifies contributing factors to whatever the problem is. And it, nowadays that could be the flu, HIV, COVID, seclusion and restraint. Doesn't matter. That's what public health does. And it refocuses us on prevention. So very specifically, if you were to look at the, the, the three steps or the three components of the public health prevention model, what you're looking at are primary prevention interventions, also called universal precautions, secondary prevention interventions called selective interventions, and tertiary prevention strategies, which are also, these, this is just scientific crap, indicated interventions. Primary prevention strategies in the general population are interventions that we use to prevent illness or disease from occurring because we're anticipating that anybody coming close to me in the grocery store might have something contagious, for instance. So we're gonna use hand washing constantly. We're gonna use masking, vaccinations, condoms to prevent things like serious illness, pre unwanted pregnancy, and those kinds of things. So that's why we train people on how to avoid these issues as, as primary prevention strategies. And we're all expert in this now, having gone through an, an international pandemic over the last two years. Secondary prevention strategies are early interventions. So if someone has gotten something, they started down a path of, of having a problem, whether that is getting sick or they were exposed to something. Um, for instance, I'll give you an example. 
Um, you know, John has started using IV opioids. Okay. So he has become dependent on IV, you know, uh, heroin, let's just say. Okay. So he has a problem, but he has a whole bunch of problems down the road, including, um, HIV, uh, abscesses, um, all kinds, um, you know, just overdose problems, all those kinds of things. So to prevent him from going farther down the road of disease and disability, he has this addiction, we're going to provide him with clean needle exchange. So that way, he is not going to get infected with, with um, HIV and even get sicker. Same thing with osteoporosis. We know that women start losing bone density in postmenopause. We can't stop that from happening per se, but what we can do is put people on women on osteoporosis prevention, um, which is often oral, sometimes IV, and, and, and artificially basically builds their bones to be stronger so they don't fall down and break a hip. Tertiary prevention is what we do when the, the bad thing happened. The person got sick, they got really sick, they ended up in seclusion restraint, whatever that is. And so now what we want to do is make their life as comfortable as possible. So we want to mitigate those illness effects and we want to especially figure out what did we miss? How did it get so bad? How did we miss this step and see what we can do to, to not do it with the next person? With, with regards to seclusion and restraint and the six core strategy model, in terms of universal precautions, the first thing we're going to do is train staff on how to be skilled to prevent conflict from occurring at all in any setting by anticipating risk factors, that we know the risk factors for conflict and violence, and those include staff and environmental triggers, using safety plans. Um, we know how to prevent conflict, great customer service, which has been ignored in behavioral health forever uh, and is just being talked about now. Secondary prevention interventions are early interventions to minimize and resolve conflict as it starts to happen. So what that means as a staff member and you're sitting in your little nursing station and you hear somebody raising their voice or you hear someone starting to pace or you hear someone throw a book that you don't sit there and wait for them to hit somebody. You get up immediately and go find out what is going on. It means that staff are trained in engagement that they can rapidly engage. And that's where peer support workers come in so successfully because they've been there, done that, and they know how to talk to people. You create win-win situations and you get rid of ridiculous rules, like you can't have anything to eat after 10 o'clock, or you can only take a shower between nine and 11, or you only can make a phone call even if you're really upset after five. Those are the kind of rules that cause conflicts and cause people to get very upset. And there's a million more of them. And then last, tertiary prevention. There's only one tertiary prevention strategy in the six core strategy model, and that is debriefing. Because the incident happened, we missed the boat, we weren't able to prevent it. So the first thing we wanna do is figure out what did we miss? What could have we done different? What, what could we have done differently and then take corrective action, including changing rules, regulations, policy, and staff training. 
So trauma-informed care is another piece of the six-core strategy model. I mentioned that a little bit. Um, systems of care that are trauma-informed clearly recognize that coercive and violent interventions, such as putting hands on people, strapping them to a bed, or dragging them into a locked room, cause trauma and are to be avoided. And we've got to remember that it's not just trauma to our customers, it's trauma to our staff who are being asked to do this, which is sometimes quite violent and looks like a simple assault if it happened on the street. And it's also very upsetting to all the observers who are standing around in the setting and watching this happen. So again, um, implementing and, and integrating trauma-informed principles and competencies are critically important in this work. So the six core strategies um, include leadership toward organizational change, using data to inform our practice. It's 2022. We should no longer be sitting around guessing about what to do. We should go to the literature, find out what other people have been able to demonstrate worked, and then use data to monitor our own work so that we can tell if we're making progress toward our goals, or if not, why not? Also developing our workforce, because most of the skills and competencies that the six core strategies demand staff have are not taught in school anymore. Implement seclusion and restraint prevention tools, which are very specific tools that are free in the public domain and anybody can use from an initial trauma assessment to the development of a safety plan, to the use of sensory modulation um, strategies, um, to teaching people how to um, regulate their emotions. In, in many, many cases, people that get violent have never learned how to regulate their intense emotions and they immediately escalate and turn to violence when they get frustrated. Um, there's just a whole bunch of tools there. And then the fifth is full inclusion of service users, peer support specialists, family members, significant others in not only, not just care, and sometimes that's not even possible because for whatever reason, the person receiving care doesn't want their family involved, but that doesn't mean that a facility or a service shouldn't be constantly reaching out to the families and significant others of the customers they're treating and get their feedback, um, get their advice. Uh, most of the facilities I've worked in in the last six or seven years all have family advisory councils. And that's incredibly important because we want the input of people from our, in our community, our, our, our community partners. And then last is making debriefing rigorous. So just a couple words on violence. For decades, if you looked at the literature, and I have been looking at the literature for decades also, the violence occurring in healthcare settings has been blamed on the patient. It's, if you look at the studies, most of them center around what kind of person gets violent in healthcare settings, what are their demographics, what's their ethnicity, what's their race, what's their age, have they ever been involved in the legal system? Do they have a substance use disorder? Do they or did they come up through foster care? And, and so by doing that kind of research, no one even asked the question of why are we saying it's all the patient's fault? And because no one ever thought to ask that question until the last 
maybe 15 years. What we started to realize was violence anywhere is very complex. You can't just say it's that reason it happened. It's generally a combination of factors that come together to create that violent event. Um, so more recently, we have adopted a completely different approach to looking at violence. And I don't care if that's in schools, a hospital, a residential program, um, an urgent care walk-in or a substance use detox. Violence is very complicated. So what we started to look at is the role of the environment, um, the skills and approaches and attitudes of staff and other things like that, because that gives us a much better picture of where we can intervene successfully. So I'm gonna briefly go over um, the six core strategies and um, very briefly, um, because again, you'll have, you, you, you are welcome to this PowerPoint. You can certainly Google this. You can also find it online. You can probably find me online blathering away um, on YouTube somewhere. Um, so I am not gonna spend a whole bunch of time because I wanna get time for questions. But anyway, leadership is the most important, most critical piece of this model. Because if your leaders, whether it's facility-based, um, re residential treatment-based, or the school principal, don't share your goals, it won't happen. So the goals need to be set that you're going to learn how to prevent violence and conflict that lead to having put hand, putting hands on to people in care. And these goals need to be very clear so that the most brand new untrained staff member understand them. It needs to very specifically state that anytime you put hands on someone, it can only be for safety in response to imminent danger to self or others. It is time limited and all events will be analyzed to prevent use in the future. Imminent danger also means to be very clearly defined. Imminent danger means someone is going to be seriously harmed in the next few seconds to a minute. It does not include cursing. It does not include throwing stuff, especially if the stuff's being thrown at a wall or on the floor. It doesn't even include tipping over TVs or tables. It just doesn't, unless it's being directed at an, an actual human being. It doesn't include screaming. It doesn't include um, spitting. It doesn't include refusing to follow a staff's rule. So we have to real, and, and many times our staff have no idea about this. In many of our settings, our staff think they're rule enforcers and they're supposed to keep everybody quiet and that, that the staff member will get in trouble if they don't enforce a rule. And that's the kind of learning that needs to be unlearned. And the only person that can do that is the agency leaders. We also, um, it also needs to include significant staff training on how to do this work. Staff are not gonna know how to do this just by like dreaming about it one night. Fundamental principle for leaders is create a vision and that vision should be wrapped around um, this whole conflict, coercion and violence prevention. Um, it can be stated as creating nonviolent, non-coercive treatment cultures. It can be stated as creating healing, healing environments that lead to hope and recovery. Doesn't really matter how you language it, but everybody in the facility needs to understand that things are going to change and that you have a new vision for that particular service. Um, and it's got to include people understanding what great customer service is, like Disneyland does, like the Marriott hotels do, and in some cases, like Walgreens does. Um, I have tons of stories about those 
those different um, those different organizations and the work they have done. And it was all it was kind of self-promoting, guys, because, you know, obviously Disney, Marriott and Walgreens wants us to come to them as customers. Right. So if they don't feel great when they come to us, why are they going to come back? They're not. And that's something that the people in behavioral health and schools and, and all kinds of other um, arenas have never had to think about. We generally have too many customers than we even want. So we don't think about how to get them to come back. And that has been a, in, an enormous hole and a flaw in healthcare services in general. And any of you who've tried to get healthcare for a loved one or yourselves over the years can probably tell me, yes, that's true. Because very often you are not treated with great customer service. Effective leaders also identify their champions and their exemplary performers. They keep them on board, they recognize them, they reward them, and they involve them. Effective leaders also develop a plan before they even start this work. And it, in, in terms of seclusion and restraint, again, it can be named whatever you want it to be named, but it needs to go under the prevention of conflict umbrella needs to include performance improvement principles so that someone is basically constantly watching and analyzing what's happening. And it needs to be inclusive of the, the customers and the, the families and significant others. Um, so again, harm is still being perpetrated on people in many behavioral health facilities, um, certainly is in Department of Corrections, juvenile justice, foster care in some cases, and in many cases, staff don't even really know that they're doing that. They've been trained or they're not being supervised. So I'm, I'm not here to point fingers. A lot of this is training and supervisory accountability. Using data, critically important. For every facility that I go into or agency that I go into, one of the first things I ask them to do is to give me their baseline use of seclusion and restraint. Because that baseline is going to be fixed into concrete, and that is what that facility is going to measure themselves against going forward. So you can't go backward and change your baseline. You're going to have a baseline of what your use rates are, and so then we're going to ask them to analyze events going forward. And this varies very much depending on whether a facility or an agency has a, an electronic record or if they're still doing things by hand. Best case scenario, if, you, if, I'm a, if I'm a hospital director or a residential program director, I'm going to want to know when seclusion and restraint events occur by the unit, the day, the shift, the time of day, who is being involved, the age, gender, and race of the customer, the date of their admission. Because, for instance, what we found is in many of our systems is that the, the highest risk for seclusion and restraint is in within the first 24 to 48 hours. And so when we've identified that, what we've been able to say is, okay, whoa, that means we're not doing good orientation of people coming in. They're probably scared to death. They don't know who to ask for help. They don't know how to get their needs met. And so they're freaking out and they're start, and then they end up getting escalated. So let's do a much better job doing orientation. Um, what we found in some state, in some places, were that the time of day, um, when people came to shift change, at three o'clock in the afternoon and there's all this hustle and bustle and people are leaving and coming. It, it pushes home the point to the people in care. You don't get to go home. Everybody else gets to go home. You don't get to go home and it angers people. Um, in some cases, 
um, th those kind of issues, once fixed or managed, and there are a bunch of ways to do it, those issues decrease greatly. You also want to look at your attending physicians in terms of a healthcare setting. You want to look at the staff involved in the events. What we found, in, especially in behavioral health, that certain staff who tend to be large men get a lot of kudos for managing the milieu. And so they become very um, re repeatedly thanked and respected because they're the ones to go in and manage a violent patient so that nobody else has to get hurt, which is not the way to do that work anyway. But the point is that staff, if you see a pattern that, you know, John and David are the people that are constantly involved in these events, that's probably what has happened to some degree. And you have to go in and change that whole mindset because every single staff member that works in behavioral health should be supremely excellent at de-escalation. You're also going to want, want to look at your precipitating events. And it can't just be Danny got uh, hostile and then he got aggressive and then we restrained him. That tells me nothing. What I want to know is that Danny's mother didn't come to see him yesterday, even though she promised. He called her this morning and she hung up the phone on him. He then went to a staff member and asked if he could get his headphones out of his room and was told no because he didn't reach the level of the, the um, point and level system or the privilege system to allow him to have headphones. And then he hit somebody. Those are the events I want to know about because those I can fix. So those are the kinds of things that we have discovered over the, these years. Uh, again, using data, this is what Penn State of Pennsylvania did this. They did a beautiful job. They put their 10 state hospital, hospital administrators, they, may, they had them post their data over a 10 year period of time. And the hospital that had reduced the most got a lot of recognition and in some cases got money for special projects. And guess what happened? A very interesting and civil competition occurred so that by the end of last year, the entire state of Pennsylvania's mental health state hospital system now only is allowed to use seclusion and restraint for up to 15 minutes. And they have basically reduced use over the last 15 to 20 years by 99.9%. They barely use it. They have a number of staff, I mean, a number of hospitals in Pennsylvania that haven't used seclusion and restraint for years. And they take the most vulnerable and the most ill people in that state. So when people tell me this can't be done, I tell them, yes, it can. It absolutely can. Workforce development, again, staff need to get retrained on aggression and violence, who's at risk, they need to also understand the medical risks of putting hands on people. People literally die in five minutes, usually by asphyxia. Um, and asphyxia can be caused by asthma. When someone gets a hands put on them and their, um, their, their, card, their ner nervous system and cardiac system work together, they start to get escalated, their vital signs go up, um, and they have a harder and harder time breathing, especially or the common cold. Um, uh, abdominal obesity um, can be a significant risk factor. Recent surgery can be a significant risk factor. Um, so staff need to understand, and they also need to understand that when someone says, I can't breathe, they need to immediately understand that that is a critical factor. Somewhere along the line, the myth 
that if someone can talk, they can still breathe has become pervasive. And I have literally seen in the last two years, 40 different deaths in different states, including Department of Corrections, where someone was restrained, put face down on the floor and said, I can't breathe over and over and over under video. And the staff said, yes, you can, because you can still talk and they died. Workforce development, again, staff need to understand that violence is not about blaming the patient. It's about environmental factors and situational factors, which is a combination of staff and the environment. Environmental factors can be things like noise, no privacy, loud blaring PA, you know, those public announcement um, speakers that just interrupt whatever you're doing all times during the day and night. It can be crappy food or not enough food. It could be nothing to do. When you put a bunch of people together and you don't give them something interesting to do, guess what happens? And it would happen if you rounded all of us up and you put us in a big empty warehouse and you said, you're gonna have to stay here for one week and we are gonna give you food and we're gonna give you water and we're gonna give you something to sleep on, but that's about it. And you're just gonna have to like entertain yourself. I would, get, I would guess that within 24 to 48 hours, there would be a fist fight. So it has nothing to do with mental illness. It has to do with human beings. We're much more like the customers that we serve than we're not. Um, prevention strategies, I've talked a little bit about those already. We're talking about these help the people we serve during their earliest stages of escalation. So what we want to do is we want to develop a safety plan when they come in. And that safety plan includes triggers, early warning signs, and strategies to calm down. These are individualized plans, um, and there are all kinds of forms and documents out there now to help guide staff in doing this. So we want to make it clear that a trigger, all of us have triggers. We all have a sensory diet. We all have an amygdala that's our smoke alarm that's constantly looking for danger or um, any, any threat. So we all, and we all are threatened by different kinds of things. For people in care, bedtime, room checks, large men yelling, people too close, um, unfair rules is a biggie, not being listened to, feeling lonely, being in the dark, being teased. Um, all these things are triggers and there's many, many more of them. We all have them. So helping that person identify what their triggers are, then helping them under, um, identify how they feel in their body when they start to get upset. And that, again, is very different. Clenching teeth, wringing hands, rocking. Um, your heart starts pounding, pacing, bouncing, swearing, um, feeling shortness of breath. It, it differs for everybody, but we want to help that person identify. And sometimes it takes a number of meetings to help them figure out what, what their body is telling them. And then to help them identify strategies to calm down. And again, just like everything else, this is very individualized. And sometimes the customer, the, the patient won't know. And they'll say, well, going for a walk sounds good. And then in their next crisis, you say, do you want to go for a walk? And they basically say, F you. So then that doesn't mean you throw out the plan. It means you sit down and you start talking again and you say, okay, so let's go back and figure this out again. Music is a universal soother. Rocking in a rocking chair is a universal soother. Talking to someone who wants to listen is a universal soother for most people. If a person's getting agitated, reminding staff, 
People that are hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or thirsty tend to have much less control over strong emotions. Um, so prevention plans are really important. So is integrating sensory modulation strategies, which includes assessing the sensory diet. We all have a sensory diet because I'm guessing that almost everybody on this call um, has a job, probably pays a mortgage or rent, maybe has a family. So that means you're a, success, a successful human being, which means you learn how to manage your dysregulated feelings. Because if you hadn't, I mean, I could ask you if I could see you, how many of you have ever gotten upset at work? And through my experience over the last 22 years, at least half the room raises their hand and says, yes, I've gotten really upset at work. So then I ask, well, how many times did you throw a chair? Probably you didn't because you're still employed. So that's the difference. And that's because even though you don't call it this, you have figured out your own sensory diet and how to manage your emotions. Um, some of us, for me, working out, riding a horse, um, listening to music, reading a book, going for a walk, going to the gym. Everybody has different things. Um, and so it's helping our clients understand these processes and their, where we get our sensory input um, and how that can affect us in a good way and a bad way. These are all things that we do. And we teach, um, usually under occupational therapy, we teach folks about grounding physical activities that help self-soothe, um, including weighted blankets and vests. Um, we talk about, um, you know, rocking in a rocking chair. It's why in most airports now, you see rocking chairs everywhere. Rocking chairs are universal human self-soothers. Yoga, drumming, meditation, there's a million of these. Um, some facilities have put in comfort rooms or calming rooms. Um, so then the fifth is full inclusion of peers, families um, in the change processes. Back in 2003, the new Freedom Commission for Mental Health Transformation called for the complete inclusion of, of consumers and family members um, as full partners in creating their own plans of care and weighing in on how services were being provided. I'm not gonna go through the grassroots peer advocacy movement, but if you don't know about it, I really strongly recommend that you read about it. This um, addition, the, the peer supporter a, um, workforce addition to the behavioral health field, and there's no reason it couldn't be in schools, especially schools with kids with special needs, has been the most valuable and significant addition to the behavioral health field pretty much since probably the concept of recovery. And so um, please do get to know something about that. Um, and then debriefing. Again, debriefing is kind of like a root cause analysis. We dumb it down a bit because you have to, because you're, you don't have the kind of time to do a full root cause analysis in most cases when a bad event happened. It's a stepwise tool. It helps us rigorous, rigorously analyze a uh, adverse event and figure out how it won't happen the next time. It, it's almost like uh, you'll have a staff member that facilitates debriefing and they become kind of like a reporter or a detective, and they want to gather all this information in a safe space. You really try and avoid people getting defensive. So staff have to know that they're not going to get in trouble if they talk about what happened. In the most cases, a seclusion event 
is not due to just one factor. It's a combination. And often it's due to lack of staff, staff training, poor supervision, and ridiculous rules that the staff have been told to enforce and that make no sense um, and that cause people to be shamed, humiliated, or just plain angry. Um, debriefing goals, again, is to prevent the future use of seclusion and restraint and to address organizational problems and make appropriate changes to avoid events in the future. So I'm not gonna go through all these very specific issues other than um, I did wanna talk about, um, debriefing is more than setting the record straight. It's about sharing responsibility for what happened with the client in care. If we expect children and adolescents in care to learn from events, then we need to role model that learning. We need to be okay to say, I am so sorry that this happened. Aaron Lazare in Massachusetts wrote a great book called On Apology. And it, it's the best description of what an apology is and what an apology isn't and how powerful it is. And he did it because he noted that when he started looking at bad outcomes in the Massachusetts hospital system, and I'm talking about general medicine, he started noticing that even some of the most egregious mistakes made by physicians did not end up in lawsuits. And when he started to discuss those issues with those physicians and with um, families and customers that these bad events had happened to, what he found out was that when the wronged party or the person who did not get good health care or who had, a mistake had been made felt like they were listened to and that it really was a mistake and nobody's fault, they didn't tend to sue. And one of the commonalities with, with there was the professional person going back to the patient or the family and saying, I'm so sorry that this happened. That is not saying that you're to blame. Um, it's taken a while to get attorneys to be comfortable with this, but all we're saying is we're sorry this seclusion or this restraint event happened. Do you want to talk about it? How did we how did we upset you? What, what did we do that was helpful, if anything? What, what, should, would, what should we do differently next time? Um, final comments, this work is a journey. It requires full commitment from leadership and it will not happen if you do not have that. It does not require funding or special staff. Entire systems have successfully done this work as well as little tiny programs. And um, the best practices for once a state agency or a facility gets involved in this and sees how successful they are, that they put it in writing, in policy or regulations, because if those leaders leave, we have seen a number of times where things just go back to the old days. And I'm just going to end with a quote that I think is really important here about violence. Uh, Martin Luther King said this back in 1967, um, violence is the language of the unheard. So thank you very much. That's my contact information, and I'm going to turn it back over to our friend Guy. Kevin, um, you know we've had uh, a lot of uh, a lot of presentations here, some really great things uh, that people have shared with us over over a couple of years now. Um, but wow, um, I've got to say that this this presentation uh, really uh, resonated with me, and. Uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to stand up and give you a standing ovation to this, although nobody really wants to see probably, you know, my, my midsection here. Um, you know, as, as you were going, you know, you, you and I have talked before and I, I had some 
some sense of uh, kind of the approach. Um, but, you know, as you went through this, you know, uh, you may have seen off screen, my head was just kind of bouncing up and down. Uh, there's so much meaningful here. And, you know, I, I look at this and think, you know, this has been done. This is evidence based. Uh, here is a roadmap. Uh, and if you can bring this into place, um, that you can be successful in achieving the goal. Uh, and, and, I, and I love even just where it all starts, because, you know, I find myself often feeling like, you know, well, one, it's, it's culture, uh, you know, it's training. It's kind of how things have been done. Um, but the leadership part is so incredibly important. Yep. Uh, you know, I, I've said before uh, with with no scientific proof or no evidence base for this, but bear with me that, um, you know, I believe if, if leadership makes a commitment to reducing restraint seclusion, you can probably with doing nothing else but making that commitment uh, significantly begin to reduce your use of restraint yeah. seclusion. Um, but what you've outlined here. Uh, and the things that you brought into this conversation, uh, understanding, I mean, I mean, there, there's so many wow points for me here and, and, you know, audience, uh, you know, you, that have participated in these events, you know, have seen, you know, us do a lot of these events, but there were so many points that you brought up, um, that are so critical, you know, bringing up the, the importance of, you know, kind of the, you know, uh, the student, the, the patient, the, the client, whoever may be, they may be bringing up the importance of connecting with families and, 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 you know, getting support, you know, very often in our systems, uh, whether again, you know, it's, it's education or healthcare, whatever it may be, uh, we, you know, see that they listen least to the people that probably know the most. Um, yeah. So, so all of this is, is absolutely uh, incredible. I see a lot of really great comments. In fact, I even had people commenting uh, directly to my phone during this and saying how amazing it was. Um, you know, I want to get to some questions here that we might have, but uh, I, I just had to kind of gush here for a couple seconds to say, wow, this was really impactful. Um, and Thank you. the fact that you've been doing this work for, for quite some time and, and you know, um, you know, I, I realized that changing this changing systems, changing, uh, changing the world is not an easy thing to do, but anywhere that you're able to make progress, you know, uh, one facility, two facilities across the state, um, those are lives that are less likely to be traumatized or as you, I mean, the, the number of deaths that you pointed out, uh, under that umbrella of, I can't breathe. I mean, it, you know, it just, it really hit me. Um, and, and, you know, you bringing up kind of the, you know, oh, the, this misguided idea. And, and there's so many misguided ideas that are out there, um, that are, that are guiding people's, uh, decisions. Um, and, and nobody wants to be that person that's in the situation. I mean, you know, uh, somebody brought up, uh, brought up the death of a young autistic man that died a couple of years ago being, you know, uh, physically restrained here in the chat. Um, you know, you nobody wants to be the person that was on the other side of that either. Um, so at any rate, I'm going to stop for a second and, and uh, <laughs> just got a comment here that said, I think you're gushing for all of us. So uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that comment. You know, I, I usually don't get this uh, and, and maybe excited is the wrong word, but you brought so much together in this. And I think that anybody that's um, participating today and that will watch us in the future that's had a child that's been on the other side of this or has experienced it themselves. I mean, we have, uh, you, you might be surprised or might not be, unfortunately, but 
Um, you know, we have a number of uh, parents and caregivers that themselves experienced restraint or seclusion when they were in school many years ago and have had children. Uh, of course, we often find that neurodivergent children far more likely to be restrained and secluded. You know, kids with a trauma history far more likely to be restrained and secluded. Um, so, you know, I think that anybody that that's had that kind of experience uh, you know, you've hit on so much of, of what's important here. So I'm going to give people a chance to put in questions, but uh, just wanted to, for a moment, um, you know, and, and, I, and I'll have to warn you that uh, you're going to get an email from me later about another meeting, because as I've been uh, processing all this, just ideas are, are flowing. So <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely fine for that, because this is a very complex topic. And it, it I mean, it just, it's not something you can just do for a second and go, oh, okay, and walk away from them. So I am happy to get on the phone again or get on a Zoom again and answer more questions because we're not going to have that much time this time, but I am happy to do that. Yeah, that, that, that would be fantastic. And, um, you know, again, you know, there, there's so much, you know, and, and I'm sure that you can relate to this, but, um, you know, there, there, there's a lot that's validating about what you say as well. I mean, things that, you know, we've been talking about here at the Alliance now for a few years, uh, you know, and as you hear this from the extensive work that you've done and the research behind all of this, it's validating because there's a lot of people out there that, um, you know, again, will will shut down, um, you know, uh, information that uh, is really relevant. And when you've really done the, the due diligence and the science behind it, uh, it, it changes things significantly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you talked about and I'm going to bring up a comment here. Uh, Tricia says my two adopted uh, children with DD and SAD are restrained and secluded for non-compliance, spitting and eloping. Um, you know, you mentioned that and, and that's something we see a lot. I mean, you know, I would say to you that in, you know, my experience working, um, you know, in this area and working with families and individuals, uh, I would say that at least 90% of the restraints and seclusions that I hear about, if not more, are for non-compliance, disrespect, minor behaviors, power struggles, um, you know, and, 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 you know, not, um, not at all that, again, they couldn't have been handled upstream. And, and you made really great points around that as well. Even in the field where there's a lot of education around things like, uh, you know, antecedents, uh, too often people look at the, the 30 seconds before an incident, uh, and they yeah. make an assumption and, and, you know, your, your illustration of that really makes that, you know, point that it's not necessarily just this one thing, yeah. but it can be a whole chain. It can be, you know, I think about, uh, Dr. Bruce Perry's work and, you mm -hmm. know, it can be sometimes things that are very hard to figure out initially. Maybe it's that the, the man that was, uh, you know, providing the, you know, um, directives to the individual were a certain cologne that remin you know yes. was reminiscent of, of an absolutely yeah. yeah that's why so we much. avoid having anybody in uniform at recovery international because we use very little seclusion restraint and we take people off the street from police in handcuffs mm -hmm. and we mm -hmm. almost never use but it's because we're 50 percent staffed by peer support specialists and we are skilled in rapid engagement and we basically bring people in engage and say Want something to drink? Want something to eat? Here's some clean clothes. Let us wash your clothes in the washing machine. Um, sometimes we have brownies or popcorn in the microwave, which your basic realtor tells you to do that. When people come to right, see right, if they right. want to buy your house, there's right. a reason for that. That's your sensory olfactory right. 
system that says, oh, I'm safe. Right, 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 right. right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, we, we talk about safety a lot. You know, I'm a, I'm a big uh, fan of uh, Dr. Porges' work and others that kind of get to that foundation of, of neuroception and feeling safe and, you know, uh, having oversensitive threat detection systems due, due to, you know, past trauma or whatever it may be. Uh, and, and that safety is foundational. I'm going to try to go through quickly a few comments and questions. Uh, I know I promised you we would, uh, you know, probably end in a few minutes here. So we'll, we'll try to wrap up. Uh, I have, uh, let's see. Um, let's see. Uh, another uh, mother here, several children who are neurodiverse, uh, once seclusion restraint removed from public schools. Of course, Valerie, we're, we're, we're there with you. Um, I mentioned earlier uh, a parent, um, you know, who themselves was restrained and secluded, um, you know, after their family moved. And of course, uh, knowing Jennifer, I know that has also experienced that with, with children uh, and happens to be a family friend of uh, the mother of Max Benson, who was a young man that died in California uh, being physically restrained. Um, a couple of things here. Okay, so Christy asked here, is the definition of restraint being used in this broadcast also refer to the crisis prevention and in intervention techniques that teachers learn to keep students safe. And of course, uh, she's referring to CPI, uh, which is one of the training programs that offers training around um, restraint and uh, de-escalation. Um, I don't know the current definition that CPI is using, but they usually stick pretty close to um, to uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, mm -hmm. CMS. And you, you should ask them or you should just look it up. Because um, you can Google both, probably you probably have a workbook or a manual from CPI. If you don't, you can probably get it. Um, the thing to know about um, the vendors that teach these techniques is many of them are very good. CPI's one, Mance one. There's a number of them that are quite good, but there are over 40 in the country. Most of them do not provide data on whether their model is working or not for a variety of reasons. And sometimes it's, it's just because it's very expensive to do research like that. Um, but there are some new, the, what I would look for in a model, if you have any input in that, is that it needs to integrate trauma-informed care right. heavily in the curriculum. And it wouldn't hurt if it's for kids and adolescents, the Building Bridges Initiative which is a SAMHSA initiative that started probably 15 years ago that is completely in lockstep in, with what I was talking about today. It's mm -hmm. called the Building Bridges Initiative. Many mm -hmm. states are participating in that work. I don't know about schools, but they should because it's 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 like hand in glove. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah, great points there. And, and I actually, uh, I, I've, myself gone through the CPI training because I wanted to understand what they were training in. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll tell you that my son was restrained and secluded, um, you know, in, in what led to me started the Alliance. And, and at the time the school, um, you know, said that, you know, of course they were trained in safe restrained seclusion, uh, you know, by CPI. And of course uh, CPI doesn't train in seclusion. And, you know, I think that, we could all probably agree, including folks at CPI, that there, there's no such thing as a safe restraint. No. Uh, restraint can have less risk if you're, you know, doing things uh, perhaps as you've been taught, but there's always risk. And, and CPI, I know in particular, lists those risks in their documentation yeah. where they talk about, you know, all the different risks of, of restraint. But sometimes by the time the training gets down to the provider, uh, they've taken a four-day training into 
uh, four hours and it focuses on the physical yes. part and, and often misses that's much right. of the, the And that's part. what people remember. We yep, found absolutely. the same thing in the early days that these trainings were 75% how to grab people and take them down and 25% on how to avoid it. So what do you think people remember? Right. And then right. to make it even more hard is that many of the holds that they're taught are kind of quasi martial arts holds, which you can't possibly remember without practicing. Right. Right. So right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, it, it would so be like going to a, a four hour session to learn how to play the guitar. Right. Yes. Um, without yes. doing that, and then they end up practicing or they get in trouble because they did it wrong. Right. So think right. about that from a staff member's perspective. Right. 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 Um, so that some of the new vendors that are coming out are making it much simpler. And I'd be glad to talk to you about that offline because I don't want to get sued for saying anything bad about anybody. <laughs> but, but things are constantly evolving. Right, and, right. But I, I, again, I will say um, CPI, MANT, TCI from Cornell, um, they're pretty tried and true. Um, but right. that doesn't mean none all of us can improve. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll say the same. I mean, I found that there are some companies out there that um, I think are are doing things. I think how to put this. Um, some of them are far better than others. Uh, there are some out there that frighten me. There are some mm -hmm. out there that, that oh, yeah. say things that uh, are, are really scary. Um, yeah. Jennifer also mentioned, and, and I mentioned earlier, Max Benson, he was killed because he spit at school, was held down for an hour and 45 minutes. Um, in fact, he, he had just turned 13. Uh, Max was the the same age as my son around the time my son was being uh, restrained and secluded at school. Um, but again, you know, kind of hits this idea that um, so much happens because of compliance, thinking of adults who, who them themselves become dysregulated. And, and yes. you know, that's another thing that you brought up that, you know, I was I was there uh, probably applauding to was um, making the point that, um, you know, part of this is about the adult behavior. You know, it, it's yes. not just and the adults ex lived experience growing that's up right. and how they learned how to manage conflict and stress mm -hmm, and being mm -hmm. escalated themselves. Absolutely. You know, things were born knowing how to fix. Mm -hmm, you have mm -hmm. to learn that. And there's a whole the whole neurobiology. I'd be glad to do the neurobiology um, training with you guys at some point. We'd love to. Um, We'd love to. That, it's, it's really for non healthcare professionals in a way. And it really explains a lot about what we deal with on the back end because of what these kids and, and adults failed to learn for a million reasons, not parents. I mean, mm -hmm. for a million reasons, they just didn't learn when they were growing up. Right. Right. Absolutely. I, I'm just going to do a couple more things here real quick and then, then we'll wrap up. Uh, I see a comment from my friend Floyd who said, uh, thank you for discussing hospitality in such depth. Uh, it's something that I've been trying to push for uh, the congregate care communities in Oklahoma to take up hospitality and recognizing that these are both workplaces and homes. Uh, do you have any hospitality training that you recommend? You know, I don't, but that's not because I would love to know one. What I usually do is roll it into what is trauma-informed and what is not trauma-informed because the trauma-informed training that we do is heavily customer-centric. Mm -hmm. It's all about the customer's right. That That's just the bottom line. Um, I don't care if they're screaming at me and, and doing whatever they're doing. I have to go to them and say, what's wrong? What can I do? Obviously, you're upset. I'll do anything you need me to do that to help you calm down. Now, that may mean I, I'm going to have to negotiate, but that means I avoid saying no. And it means I avoid giving someone one choice. I try and give them two or three options. 
and, and engage with them and make them feel heard. Because usually if a human being feels like they're being heard in a respectful manner, they're not likely to punch you in the face. Mm-hmm. The only time that generally happens is someone is really intoxicated on something like meth or PCP. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole different conversation mm-hmm. where you do things a little differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and certainly not the uh, the case in many of the environments that we're talking about no. uh, and with schools. I mean, what we're often talking about, uh, you, you know, and I, I often say this, and I think you would probably agree, when we're talking about kids that are being restrained and secluded in schools, when I see a kid that's being restrained and secluded, what I most often really see below the surface is a child that's not having their needs appropriately met. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, let- get their needs met, they get upset. Absolutely. And, 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 and we've taken their power away to meet their own needs. Right? Absolutely. Lock someone up in a facility. Now they have to find out where the bathroom is. They're told when to go to bed and when to get up, when they can make a phone call, what they have to eat, how much they can eat, what they can have in their room. Their phones are taken away. Can you imagine right now when the like 13 year olds on have phones and it's their primary communication device? We just rip them out of their hands when they come into care and expect them to be okay with that. Mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. ridiculous. That's crazy. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. I mean, and in some states like in Massachusetts, they basically said people can have their cell phones. If they abuse it and take a picture, they lose their phone for the entirety of the length of stay for the rest of the time. Otherwise, they charge them at the nurse's station and they get their phone. And now they, we have not blocked contact with their their core support systems. Right. Right. Why would we do that? Right. Absolutely. So, uh, well, sorry, a couple. <laughs> no, no, I, I appreciate it. I, you, you know, it, it's always, um, you know, such a, a pleasure to meet people that are really passionate about this. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate that. I uh, just want to share a couple of the thank yous that we got here. Thank you for the extraordinary work that you do. Uh, stupendous. Thank you. Uh, uh, somebody asked again for your, your contact information. Of course, I can make that available to folks as well. Uh, but a lot of great uh, comments here. Uh, I am going to, um, before I ask if you have anything else to uh, share, um, I'm going to mention briefly, um, that we've got another event coming up. I'm actually going to keep you here for this. And the reason I'm going to keep you here, I think you'll understand in a moment. Uh, and it just hit me as I was uh, thinking about this, uh, which is that our next live event is Dr. Maggie uh, Bennington. Oh my Davis. God, she's my colleague. She helps with right. more strategies. That's right. That's right. So it, it was actually, interestingly enough, it was uh, Maggie who pointed me to you. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I decided that it would be great to, to talk to both of you. Uh, so she's going to be joining us uh, in two weeks from today awesome. uh, to talk about changing culture and implementing trauma-sensitive services. So uh, really excited to be uh, highlighting uh, Maggie's work, and especially, uh, Kevin, after after going through the six core principles with you. Um, so um, with that said, uh, that's what we have coming up. Are there any final words that you'd like to share with us uh, or the audience here before we wrap up? Just thank you so much for your time today. Um, I I love talking to folks um, like you because you're like my choir. And so I really think we can make big changes working together. And I will make myself as available as I can possibly make myself available if you want to have uh, some more conversation. And just thank you for the work you do. Um, it's hard work, but you are making a difference. And you may not see it right away, but keep talking about it, teach your kids about it, talk to your neighbors about it. And that's how cultures change. 
Absolutely. You, you know, I shared the other day uh, on our on our social media uh, the the story of the the starfish. The, I don't know if you know that story, but uh, that's always resonated with me. And the idea that well, I made a difference to that one. Um, I do believe this this work is making a difference, and I'll tell you that one of the positive signs of that. Um, you know, we get media inquiries almost on a weekly basis now. And, you know, I know there's a number of major news outlets working on stories about, um, yes. you know, restraint seclusion. Um, so, you know, th this work, amplifying this work, anything we can do to work together um, is worthwhile. So I am going to end the broadcast. But if you hang around for one second, I'll just wrap up with you as well. So thank okay. you, everybody, for joining us today. And we'll see you again very soon. Talk to you later. Bye bye.